Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Travel restrictions are being put in place by both the federal and provincial government. How will these restrictions affect us all, and how are they going to affect the airline industry? We'll talk about that. Global's Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini joins us to give us uh, an insight into what's going on south of the border right now with the pandemic, with vaccinations, and with the, of course, pending Donald Trump trial and the latest happening there, too. And the COVID-19 pandemic has had an effect on nearly every Canadian's mental health. Many of us are turning to nature as a coping mechanism. We'll give you some details on a recent survey that was done. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canada's main airlines have agreed to cancel service to the Caribbean and Mexico. Uh, the federal government is introducing new mandatory quarantine rules as it tries to discourage international travel. Now, there's been a lot of pushback on the announcement. Uh, some folks saying that they didn't get enough notice about this uh, and that they don't think it's fair, that there's uh, going to be this uh, mandatory quarantine that's going to be paid for by those people, by the way. It's not going to be on the government time. Talk about uh, the whole situation and the ramifications. Uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Mike McDaddy, who is the president and CEO of National Airlines Council of Canada. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, did this catch you off guard, or did you see this coming? Uh, I would say in terms of uh, the details, uh, that, that those tend to catch uh, a little bit off guard, but the government had been, uh, I suppose, telegraphing this for, for several weeks, that new measures were going to be coming in, and uh, everyone needs to prepare accordingly. We've all learned, uh, this is an understatement, to pivot, I guess, over the last year or so with COVID, because things do change so dramatically. Uh, this is going to cause the airline industry to pivot. Uh, how's this going to impact it, Mike? What do you see happening? Uh, I like that phrase, we've all had to pivot. I think, uh, I think I'm the, the president of pivoting these days. <laughs> it, it, it is absolutely going to have, have an impact. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Every time we think we've hit the bottom here, and, and the crisis cannot get any deeper. We we find a way for the crisis to deepen. We're, we're sitting now at uh, about 90% of capacity has been removed from the market, and, and there's been tens of thousands of, of airline employees who have lost their jobs. And mm-hmm. following the announcement uh, last week, of course, you, you saw Air Transat is shutting down for the second time during the pandemic. Uh, they had shut down for several months earlier in the pandemic. So it it, it continues to have a very corrosive impact overall and from our perspective and having been in the industry now for 20 years the the, the greatest concern we now have as this continues is that all that investment and all those jobs that have been supported by that investment over the past 10 years and the level of service and connectivity our economy has been predicated on as we entered 2020 all of that is is disappearing and it's going to take we're going to have to be very very careful uh, and really get our homework done properly with government and industry if we're going to ensure that we will have the ability to recover and bring back those jobs and not just in aviation but through the broader travel and tourism sector and and, and that's going to be an absolutely critical exercise over the next uh, several weeks and it is also basically the only means we have in front of us to try and put some hope out there that we will eventually be able to pull out of this well, and therein lies the problem, and I'm assuming that you've had more than one or two discussions about that very thing, about you know trying to get back on your feet and coming out of this at the other end. Uh, and your industry, Mike, is is one of many, I guess, uh, that if, I think I think you know are facing the re- realization that you can't just flick a switch and say, okay, we're back to normal now. This is going to take a long time. Absolutely, and it'll take some time. Even if even if 
theoretically you did get to a state where, okay, everything is clear from here on in. And I know that's obviously not how it was going to work. But even if it did work that crisply, within aviation, we have billions of dollars in Canada of aircraft that are parked. I mentioned a few moments ago that the number of jobs that have been lost and furloughed. Bringing all of that capacity back online is going to take quite a bit of time and bringing people back and getting them retrained and current on their on their training obligations is obviously going to be a lengthy process and we're looking at at years that it will take to try and get back to the level of service and flights that we had uh, as we entered 2020 and the 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 reality is that the countries that do this well that provide liquidity support for their sector that have a true recovery strategy that is tied to testing it's tied to rapid testing as well as pcr that is that is also tied then to your quarantine levels the countries that do that well they are going to be the ones that are going to be able to support their economic recovery overall they're going to be able to compete and take market share from those countries that do not do this well. And, and that is, the, that is the, the broader challenge that uh, we're going to face, not just within our sector, but in all the elements of the economy that aviation uh, ultimately supports. We've seen, well, since last March, I suppose, governments with a certain reticence to, to actually take this big step. I know that other countries, New Zealand and others, uh, were make, making these bold moves, these radical moves, way back when in the early stages of the first wave of this. And uh, the statistics indicate that it was you know, a, a pretty effective program, albeit there are huge economic consequences, as you and I have just been talking about. Uh, is In your mind, having seen what you're seeing here, is, is, is this a, a strategic move or is this too little too late? Because I've heard criticism both ways in, in the last three days. Well, I think the, the, I think the moves overall uh, are being driven by the current state of, of, of the virus. Uh, and you've heard the government's pronouncements, why in particular they were focused on uh, summer travel, or excuse me, uh, sun travel and sun destinations. Mm-hmm. But uh, to, to agree, your, your question does go back to the processes and steps we're going to actually have to take to address where we're going heading going forward as well and we have been pushing and trying for for many many months to get a very clear and concise testing strategy that as i said is tied to those quarantine measures and you would bring in various levels of testing at various points in the travel journey and you've seen that in other countries as well as being critical to their ability to move forward so i think there's going to be a variety of pieces that have to go into it but we, we 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 have to nail down what that recovery strategy and approach is going to be and it's going to be critical to do that over the next several weeks because if we don't get it right the the economic implications of the pandemic are going to last far far longer than the the actual public health implications when we you know, hopefully through vaccines and testing it's to get the, the public health aspect of it under control yeah one of the other elements i've heard uh, in talking to some of the folks of political background on this is is because the statistics, I mean, if we were to say, okay, where are the hotspots? The airline industry is not one of them. The, the percentage of people that are, are, are being, you know, credit, exposed because of the airline industry apparently is very minimal. Uh, but the indication I'm hearing is they're concerned about what could be happening next, uh, you know, with the, the UK variant or the South African variant, et cetera, et cetera. They seem to be cropping up. I think there's a California variant now, too. Uh, and they're saying, okay, maybe we maybe we missed the boat on on the first wave, even the second wave, but we don't want a third wave. Uh, and this is precautionary more than anything else. Does that assuage your concerns at all? Well, it, it speaks. It, it still speaks ultimately to the need for a recovery strategy piece. So, re- regardless of which elements the government is going to decide to implement, the the end reality, of course, is the same from 
from the, the airline perspective and the travel perspective. There are massive reductions, obviously. We have still been basically operating at stage zero on that economic recovery continuum. All the border measures and travel restrictions that went into effect in March of, of last year are, have still been in, in effect throughout the totality of the pandemic. So whatever measures you are now taking and whatever ones may occur over the next several weeks, and obviously with multiple testing now and with the pullback of, of flying completely from certain destinations, there there's quite a bit of activity that's underway at this moment. But regardless of which aspects we take, it still leads us back to the question of how are we ultimately going to establish the parameters for recovery. And, and that does not mean, when I'm talking about the, these issues of further engagement in testing and further engagement from the science perspective in terms of the quarantine measures. That does not mean those are things that get implemented in the next week or two weeks or three weeks. But the homework to ensure that we've actually created that process, that is going to be very detailed. And those are the things we need to work on if we are still operating on, to some degree, the hopeful assumption, but nonetheless operating on the assumption that by the, by summertime or end of summer, whatever that time frame may be, the vaccinations will manage to actually start to take hold and we will be able to see a, a recovery path out of all of this. Let me pick up on that, if I could, because I, I agree with you. That's an integral part of this whole thing is, is okay, what's going to happen, you know, on the other side of the mountain here? Are you part of that discussion? Is your industry at the table? Are you, is is the, the government talking to you about this? I mean, obviously, you're going to have a role to play in this, a huge role to play in this. Uh, you'd like to think that, that you're going to be involved in the considerations as to what may work and may, may not work. Yes, and, and both airlines and airports, we have been joining together. Canadian Airlines and Canadian Airports in engaging with uh, Health Canada, Public Health Agency, Transport Canada, CBSA, Public Safety and others. There's obviously there's a lot of groups involved in this, as you can imagine, across the federal government. And we've also been doing it at a provincial level as well with provincial health authorities. And that is in part why airports and airlines drove the launch of a series of pilot testing programs in uh, Calgary, uh, Vancouver, and Toronto over the past several months, a series of pilot testing programs that have looked at both rapid antigen and PCR testing. And we've been providing all that data to provincial as well as federal authorities. So there's, it, it, it is a bit like trying to corral you know, water that's sloshing around on uh, and going over over the lips of the pool here, trying to get everything to go in a certain direction. But yes, uh, and this is a rather long-winded answer to your short question, but yes, we are engaged, and, and it is trying to engage across a multitude of, of different entities that all have some responsibility, either directly or indirectly, from a policy perspective in what the ultimate outcomes uh, will be from, uh, from the governance and from a, a provincial and federal uh, perspective. Mike, what are you hearing from your members on this? And by extension, uh, the customers. Uh, there was a lot of speculation, of course, when the announcement was made late last week. And, uh, you know, the, the parameters were set about 14-day quarantines, mandatory quarantines at designated hotels. And people thought, my God, we can't afford to do this. Uh, over the weekend, as, as our folks at Global and others have, have talked to some of the people that are down in some of these sun locations, uh, they seem to figure, okay, let's let's think about this. Some of them are going to stick it out. They're going to stay down there until the end of April, I guess. But that's not financially feasible for all. Uh, now we're finding out that it's not necessarily a 14-day quarantine at a hotel. I guess you get a test as soon as you land. And if you test negative after three days, you can go home and uh, finish the rest of your quarantine there. So it's not quite as onerous. Uh, nonetheless, it is going to be problematic for an awful lot of people. It, it is, and it, it's quite a series now of, of measures. You will have your your PCR test within 72 hours of your posted departure, return back to Canada. You will have your test upon arrival. You will have up to three days then in a 
in a government chosen hotel while you wait for those results. And then obviously, if you have two negative uh, test results, you will be going back to wherever you were going to self quarantine. Mm-hmm. And there's the potentiality for a third test by day, I believe it's day 10. So all of those measures, obviously, they're, they're, they're causing a lot of challenges uh, for individual travelers. We have been as an industry, as you can imagine, since uh, since Thursday, Friday, we have been very much focused on how we are going to operationalize this simply from a lift perspective, since service is going to is ended as far as outbound to those regions, and how we're now going to have to arrange the lift to get people back in uh, over the next uh, several days who, who, to your point, want to uh, hop on a plane and come back here as opposed to waiting it out wherever they are. So for us right now, it's, it's a bit more of a shorter term focus and just how we manage all that lift and capacity and get people back. Uh, and then, you know, hopefully uh, be in a position to, to prepare for an eventual recovery and what that will look like and what operations would look like. I, I, there are some people, since we know this Thursday is, is the deadline for this, where these things are going to be implemented, that are trying to find a flight. Uh, is, is this causing a massive airlift or are they just going to have to work within the scheduled flights that were already there? All, all that is, I think, uh, is still uh, being worked through. I, I'm sure there's going to be extra segments put on as Basically, you end your outbound schedule, mm-hmm. and you're now working on uh, repatriation, I suppose, is not necessarily the phrase, but it's equivalent to that in the earlier stages of the pandemic, where you're putting on new flight segments and, and, and changing your schedule then to be able to bring people back. I, but, of course, there are even limitations to that. I mean, we just can't fill the skies with things all of a sudden. I mean, this, that has to be an integrated process, I would think, as well. It, it is, and, and it goes back to my, my earlier comments. Overall, you are down about 90% uh, as far as capacity. So if, if you just think about the number of flights and services that were occurring as you entered 2020, about 90% of that is gone and, and has been for months and months. Uh, and, and and as I said, basically since the, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've had all these measures in effect and they have not changed. So you have, you have a significantly reduced capacity uh, to put on those, those flights, but that is what the, the carriers are now working through. Uh, well, as I say, it's changed significantly even over the last couple of days as to what's actually going to be happening, and the government says that there will be more uh, announcements uh, in the not-too-distant future about uh, about testing and things of this nature, too. Uh, I really appreciate coming on with us today, Mike, and talking to us about this and explaining the situation. I know a lot of our listeners uh, may have friends, relatives, and loved ones who may be feeling as if they're kind of stranded down in some of these locations, although I still find it interesting that Florida wasn't included in that, but I guess that's a discussion for another day if we can get into that. But but uh, we'll stay in touch. Uh, thanks so much for this, and uh, good luck trying to get through this as we all are through this pandemic. Thank you for your time, and I would be happy to come back at a future date. Thanks, all, Mike. We'll take you up on that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's a little more than a week now that uh, Joe Biden has been president of the United States. Uh, he's already received some criticism from Republicans uh, for all the executive orders he signed. Not surprising in there, I suppose. Uh, but there's some rationale for that. And, of course, uh, we're also, I guess, about a week or so away from the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial uh, for Donald J. Trump. Joining us to talk about all this is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, Washington correspondent for Global News in Washington. Reggie, thanks for the time. Good morning. Hope you had a great weekend. Happy Monday. Good, and you too. A busy weekend too, watching from you some of the reporting that you gave us. I, I want to talk about the executive orders and, and maybe some of the rationale behind that. Uh, and again, I know they criticized Donald Trump of all the executive orders. It's basically 
for those who may not be up to speed on this, it's 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 a way for them to maybe circumvent is too strong a word, but not to have to go through Congress to get legislation passed. These are things within the president's uh, purview. Uh, they're not new to this administration or to the Trump administration, uh, but I, I'm getting the sense they're being used a lot more than they have in the past, Reggie. They are. They they're being used. Um you know, more so to, to an extent that we've seen in previous administrations. I think that what the difference is right now is that some of the executive orders that were put in place under the Trump administration faced such serious criticism, uh, realistically from both sides of the political aisle that, uh, you know, four years later, you have Joe Biden essentially trying to right what he sees as a series of wrongs. So while it looks like he is attempting to kind of uh, push through as many executive orders as he can, uh, what he's trying to do is simply bring America back to where it was before everything was so politically divided uh, and before you had some of those, you know, measures from the Trump administration that included things uh, like that that uh, ban on, on uh, travelers from majority Muslim nations. Uh, those things are just kind of in the spotlight right now because Biden is trying to bring the U.S. back. Yeah, it's kind of correcting a wrong, I guess, that a lot of people thought that uh, the Trump administration has incurred. And we should remind people that those very controversial policies that you just referenced, Reggie, were in fact done by executive order. So uh, they can be expunged by executive order, too. But, you know, there's a part of me that figures I, I can understand where Biden's coming from. I mean, trying to get anything. Uh, through Congress these days, even though the Democrats seem to have a slight majority uh, and, of course, a, a technical majority in the Senate these days. Uh, I mean, here we are, Reggie, we're, we're, we're into February now, and we're still talking about a COVID relief bill that has yet to get any support, uh, any uh, bipartisan support in this. So wh where are we on that? I know Biden came up with a suggestion uh, to, to, you know, to, the more money that the, the Republicans had offered. Uh, they balked at that right now, too. And Raina, people are suffering right across the country right now. What's happening there? Yeah, people are suffering, and they have been suffering for more than a year, and it has been difficult to get anything approved. Uh, you know, when you had a Republican-Democrat split in the Trump administration, now that you have a Democrat-Democrat stronghold, uh, it's still just as difficult, and it's simply because uh, there are still numbers that are needed in order to pass a big bill like this. You still need uh, to get some support from the Republican side, roughly 10 of them. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to use some kind of circumventing measure like a budget reconciliation, which could potentially tie the Democrats' hands. But at the end of the day, this is a difficult bill that they're trying to pass. Democrats want nearly $2 trillion in COVID relief to get everybody taken care of. But it also goes beyond COVID. It tries to increase things like the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, where Democrats say, look, that's going to help in the long run. It gives people more money, and it also will bring in more tax revenue. Republicans are pushing back, saying, look, we're, we're uh, you know coming back at you with a $600 billion plan. Uh, we don't want things like a national uh, minimum wage increase. It goes against their principles, uh, and they want to target the, the uh, stimulus checks to people who are making X dollars of money, which is lower than what Democrats want. This is going to be a difficult task for Democrats to pass, but Joe Biden ran on a, on, on a, a platform of unity. So what he's doing is entertaining uh, 10 senators from the Republican side at the White House later today to kind of get their input. And if he likes what he has to say, he is open to compromise. If he doesn't like what they have to say, he'll go the long way around to potentially put him, you know, put the Democrat bill through just with, you know, significantly more critics.
Your point's well taken about some of the opposition here from the Republicans, that it might actually just be a, a philosophical difference here. Uh, I know they wanted to kind of set that bar and actually ha have a sort of a means test. You're right. They don't want the wealthy or the wealthier, I guess, uh, to get these same sort of stimulus checks. But as you mentioned, Reggie, it's been over a year now. Uh, a lot of people, I, I'm not suggesting that, you know, the, the Donald Trumps and the Wall Street types in New York that are making billions of dollars need financial assistance from the government. But a lot of other people do that may, might not otherwise simply because this has gone on so long yeah and look the way that the formulas are being looked at particularly amongst republicans on who should be able to get a stimulus check they're looking on tax returns that were based on 2019 well obviously 2020 was a far different year and those people in 2019 who maybe didn't need the money do need the money because of the economic circumstances last year which is why democrats are saying look we need to be able to just give the american people money even if they don't need it giving you know it, there's a cutoff so it's not like everybody's getting a massive check if you make over and up to a certain amount of money the money starts to uh, diminish in what that check is going to be. But Democrats say the country needs help, the economy needs to be re-stimulated, uh, and giving Americans the relief that they've been looking for for months now is the only way to do this. But look, when Republicans completely had full control in the early part of the Trump administration, they got very little passed. Now we have Democrats in full control in Washington, and there's a chance that they're going to get very little passed. What's happening with COVID? You know the stories on this side of the border in Ontario last week, and for Canada for that matter, I guess we got news that uh, some of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that have been promised are not going to be coming, not for a while anyway. Uh, and we're told it's a global shortage. I, I, is, now, I understand that there's a Pfizer operation in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I, which I guess is going to lessen the impact to a certain extent. But we've heard over the last couple of days, uh, Reggie, some very concerning stories about uh, people, Dr. Fauci and others, really worried about, I don't want to call it a third wave, but with all these variants that are coming up, uh, they're feeling as if they're falling behind in vaccinations, and it could be, well, catastrophic. Yeah, look, the, the rollout across the United States has been a mess, to you know, put it in the nicest of terms, uh, and it continues really to be in disarray, partly because of these vaccine shortages from the manufacturers, but partly because the Biden administration claims uh, that they simply didn't have a strong enough plan for how to get these vaccines rolled out from the previous administration because the focus was solely on getting vaccines developed. Uh, and here we are now, uh, you know, more than a year after this virus, a couple of months after the vaccines have come out, uh, there have been, you know, roughly 50 million vaccines distributed across the United States. R roughly 30 million of those uh, have been administered, meaning there's, you know, roughly 20 million of them still sitting on shelves somewhere. Uh, and this is causing problems. There are these massive vaccine uh, efforts uh, with, with big sites like at Fenway Park in Boston that are going to be used now to try and get uh, as many people vaccinated as possible. But states are still shorted. They still don't have the numbers that they need. Uh, and this is becoming a problematic to try and get the population vaccinated. It's also uh, becoming uh, kind of an X on, on the Biden administration because it does get into the way of this 100 million vaccinations in the first 100 days. Well, and we heard, I guess, a bit of a backtrack on that. He'd been talking about that from his inauguration day. Uh, earlier this last week, I guess, Reggie, he bumped that up to 1.5, and I now he's he tracked that and said, no, we're back to a million. Is that a result of the the shortages that they're seeing? 
I think it's, I think it's a, 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 a combination of two things. A, understanding what the logistics are around the manufacturing of this vaccine and how much is actually able to go around. But also, uh, members of the health community now uh, in this administration, and particularly at the CDC, are trying to be more realistic by saying, look, the, the public wasn't given the proper information uh, during the previous administration. And they're coming out now being realists and not being kind of like hopeful optimists by saying, look, 100 million is doable, but there are potentially going to be rollbacks. There are potentially going to be setbacks uh, that could potentially get in the way of this. So it's still on his radar. Uh, but understanding, you know, the reality of a virus where there are mutations, there are strains and there are logistical challenges, anything could happen to get in the way of that. So many other things going on. I want to talk a little bit about the FBI investigation into what happened on January 6th, of course, and that's continuing. Uh, some rather troubling stories uh, that, uh, that you were reporting on uh, over the weekend suggesting that some GOP upper echelon types, uh, not necessarily in the White House, but uh, major fundraisers, major contributors to the campaign, uh, may have been in on the funding and possibly even the planning of the insurrection on the 6th. And this is a growing problem. Uh, amongst the Republican Party right now, uh, but really is being fed still by former President Donald Trump uh, and by the party's kind of inability to come to terms with what took place on February 6th. You know, it's not just people on the outside that are being accused, these, these kind of big fundraisers and big donors into the Republican Party. There are still active questions and investigations as to whether there was anything on the inside uh, that potentially also played a role in what took place on February 6th. But I think uh, when, you have, when you broaden this out and look at the Republican Party as a whole, Bill, uh, they really are uh, trying to find what their new message is. This is a party that has kind of been tattered apart by Donald Trump. It was put in tatters with what happened on February 6th. They're trying to come to terms with the fact that they now have QAnon that's actively infiltrated into uh, the highest levels of government in, in the House of Representatives. Uh, the party is, is, in, is in shambles right now, uh, and there are kind of, you know, a number of crises that are developing on all sides of it uh, that, that they really haven't been able to get a hold of. And it, and it seems more and more obvious with the, each passing day here, Reggie, that Donald Trump still exerts a great deal of influence uh, within the Republican Party. I know there is a, a line of thinking with some people that well after he was defeated and left Washington, uh, that that might dissipate. Uh, that hasn't been the case. I mean, even some that, that had condemned him, including Kevin McCarthy, of course, in the House of Representatives, uh, was, was down at Mar-a-Lago last week, I guess, kissing and making up. And, and a number of other uh, Republicans, Marco Rubio and others, have uh, and Rand Paul certainly, uh, are still behind uh, Donald Trump and still suggesting the, the conspiracy theories that he's spouting are, are the reality. Yeah, I mean, look, President Trump, former President Trump, still pulls the strings uh, on the Republican Party, and they understand that if they want to regain control of the House in 2022, that they may still be reliant on that sway that Donald Trump has over the Republican base, which is why you have Kevin McCarthy flying down to Mar-a-Lago, you know, potentially to kiss the ring of President Trump. Uh, to try and get some kind of uh, assistance or aid into helping people uh, when it comes to the election next year. But look, over the weekend as well, you had Donald Trump on the phone with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon lawmaker uh, mm -hmm. from Georgia, who has actively you know, spewed lunacy when it comes to the conspiracies that she's pushing. Uh, and the two of them talked uh, with Donald Trump giving an endorsement uh, of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So he does still play a role. They are still reliant on him. But there is, uh, you know, kind of a fear in some of the more moderate parts of the Republican Party that this could come back to bite them, uh, you know, if, if this kind of spins out of control, uh, because there's going to hit a point in the Republican Party where they realize that Donald Trump could potentially just be too toxic, but that may come too late.
And, and it's having an impact on the impeachment. Uh, we're about a week away, I guess, from the, the beginning of that trial. Uh, and, and again, we talk about how, how fluid this whole situation is. Apparently, Trump's legal team left or were fired. We're not quite sure what happened late last week. He's hired new lawyers at this stage. But uh, some of the reporting, Reggie, is indicating that one of the reasons for the, the, the disconnect here between his legal team is that uh, they want to argue impeachment and the articles of impeachment. Uh, Trump still wants to make this about him getting ripped off in the election. And this is why people are walking away. You're right. Three of uh, uh, these uh, former people that were going to represent Trump at the uh, trial said that they did not want to be actively put in a spot to have to push these, bo- these bogus claims uh, of election fraud. Uh, and, and look, President Trump, we have to kind of circle back here. President Trump lied about uh, this loss in the election. That lie is what ultimately led to what happened uh, on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And there are fewer and fewer people who are willing to stand around the president, the former president, uh, and say, yes, what you're saying actually makes sense. This is why he is struggling to put together uh, a legal team and why he has now questionable lawyers uh, that are going to be representing him uh, when when, uh, when the impeachment trial starts up next week. But you're right. Donald Trump wants to make this about himself. He's still trying to appease that base. When at the end of the day, Donald Trump lost the election, and because of the president's actions and words, they also lost control of. So that's why there are fewer and fewer people standing behind President Trump to back these claims. And I know that there are legal experts that are going to say, well, that's not going to wash during an impeachment trial, because even Giuliani and his legal team at that time uh, said one thing in front of the microphones and quite another thing in the courtroom. But an impeachment trial is not in a courtroom. Technically, it's quasi-judicial. I get that, Reggie. But it's it's before the senators, and uh, he's he's playing to a well half of them or the home crowd. So, I mean, I, I, I guess the big question is, can he get away with that scenario there? I mean, it's going to be anyone's. It, that's a, that's an open question to see what happens uh, and who kind of buys into the argument that the, that the former president's team is going to be putting out there. It's why Democrats are simply saying, look, we don't need to bring all that much evidence forward. We don't need to bring all that many witnesses forward because every single person in this room, uh, a.k.a. these 100 senators acting as jurors, were eyewitnesses to what took place on January 6th. And they're going to say, look, the, the words that Donald Trump spoke over the last several months are ultimately the reason that you are all sitting here for the second time trying to uh, impeach Donald Trump. And look, while some people did not go along uh, with the initial move to try and kill uh, the, the trial from going forward in the first place, that may not you know, ultimately be what the final number is. Several senators, including Mitch McConnell, have said they want to see the evidence that's presented. Then they will make themselves uh, a final determination. So there is a chance that the Republican Party could turn on Trump. It's a slim chance, but it does exist. Well, it's going to be a very interesting seven days until they get going and the testimony, such as it is, begins. Uh, We're looking forward to your reporting on this. Reggie, thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How are you dealing with uh, the pandemic? It's been a while. It's, It's been a long, long while. And, uh, well, there's an awful lot of stress, and we've talked about the physical and emotional stress that this has caused. So what are we doing? How are we turning to, to, to try to find some ways for that sort of a release? Well, our good friends at uh, Ipsos Public Affairs have uh, done a national poll on this with some uh, very revealing information. Uh, here to talk about this is uh, Daryl Bricker, of course, is the CEO of Ipsos. Uh, good to have you back in the program, Daryl. Hope you're doing well these days. Well, thanks for having me on, Bill. It's an interesting survey, a uh, little off the beaten track, which I guess is where a lot of us are going these days, uh, to try to get away from some of the stressful situations uh, outside of the house, whatever the case might be. And uh, not surprisingly, or maybe some surprise to some people, uh, more and more of us, I guess, are going to the outdoors. It's it, We're back to nature. 
Yeah, and you've seen this in a number of ways, um, not just in the immediate term in, in terms of the crisis, but when you look at uh, things like, for example, you know, leaving aside survey results, things like for uh, rounds played on golf courses this year, way, way, way up. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that there were very few uh, uh, types of uh, competitive event or uh, types of competition in terms of things that you could do other than play golf. Uh, there weren't very many uh, socially um, distanced types of type, type of activities. I mean, if you were playing rugby, for example, you probably weren't doing that this year. But if you were playing golf, you probably could. You know, we've seen the number of tennis rounds uh, played this year go up. So things that you could do that were socially dis- distant, that were outside of your of your home space, those were the kinds of things that you looked to. You know, it's interesting about this. I was looking, and we'll get into some of the numbers in detail here in just a second. Uh, is that pre-pandemic, a lot of us were pretty much settled into a routine. You know, it was, if you were a nine to five worker, Monday to Friday worker anyway, uh, you know, it was go to work, uh, maybe have a little bit of time, but then you had other things to do, especially if you had a young family or taking the kids to soccer practice or doing paperwork at home or whatever the case might be. And you might squeeze in a golf game uh, once a week, maybe twice a week if you were lucky uh, or something like that. Uh, we seem to be gravitating toward it. Is the, is the, the fact that we're getting a little housebound and claustrophobic and we just want to get outside? Exactly. In, in fact, particularly younger people. So uh, a really good marker for this was the holidays. So when you go back to the holidays, the number of people that actually said that they broke the rules, I was like half the people we interviewed said that they broke the rules. They're, people are just going stir crazy. And that's why uh, as we go into this new year, and particularly when we're approaching March, March becomes such an important month. And the reason for that is that marks a year. That marks a year from when we started the lockdowns. So instead of losing weeks or losing months, we've now lost a year out of our lives. So the implications of that are huge. I mean, uh, you spend a year doing something in particular, that generally makes things into a habit. So some of the things that we saw in the survey results, are these going to be habits that are uh, continued on into the future? There's a good chance of that. But also there are political implications, there are economic implications. There's a whole lot of things that come out of marking the anniversary of this particular event. Well, here's a number that jumps out at me. 86% of the people in your survey agreed that spending time in nature is important to their mental health during this pandemic. Uh, Daryl, when do we come to that revelation? We usually didn't have a whole lot of time for the the great outdoors or going for a hike or anything. I mean, there was always a a minority of people that would do that, but that number seems to be growing. Yeah, and and the reason for that is we're not taking that for granted as much as we were. Um, And, and, you know, you, you used to be able to travel. He used to be able to go visit with your friends, uh, you know, indoors, you know, even if it was going to a restaurant or doing that kind of thing. You really can't do that sort of thing anymore. So the options that are open for us have opened our eyes, I think, in some ways. Well, and I guess it's, there's a self-fulfillment to this as well. I mean, if you start doing this, I figured, okay, I'll go for a hike or, okay, I'll go for a walk. Uh, you do that after two or three weeks and all of a sudden you can, I, there is an emotional as well as a physical change that, that often occurs. Yeah, and I think I almost call it like a fresh air bomb. You, know, you go outside and you, you inhale fresh air, and particularly this cold fresh air, and it, it tends to change your, your way of thinking about things and your perspective, I think. But, uh, yeah, I, I live not too far from High Park here in Toronto, and it's packed. Uh, but by packed, I also mean socially distanced. I mean, people are figuring out how to do things in a socially distanced way, but uh, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot more people walking around uh, than I normally see.
As do I. I mean, in Ancaster, where I've been since March 15th of last year, uh, staring out the window here, uh, you know, we're right on the, the edge of a, of a conservation land here. It's a forested area all the way around us, over three sides here. And uh, you're right. I mean, when I finish at noon, I almost have to make a reservation to, to go for a walk here because there's so many people. There are social distancing, but they're out there each and every day. And and what it does, and as I talk to some of these folks that in our neighborhood, uh, it, they, they've exposed themselves to all sorts of things that heretofore they probably didn't see or didn't have time to see. Uh, there are deer in that forest. You know, there's all sorts of wildlife. And it's kind of neat if you're a city person to say, hey, I, I, I never noticed that before. This it, this. As I was reading your numbers this morning, Daryl, it kind of reminded me of the old stop and smell the roses uh, mindset, but maybe we're starting to envelop that or embrace that now. Yeah, I think we're going to start seeing some low-impact things. I mean, we asked about a lot of things on the survey, but some low-impact things like bird watching, yeah, or gardening, things that get people outside of their house. And particularly if you live in an apartment block um, and uh, you know you're, uh, you you don't have a balcony, uh, city parks and places like that become uh, you're out, out outdoors. I mean, it's not like you can go to the mall and, and, and kill time and walk around and shop these days. So, you know, people are now discovering the outdoors. And, you know, quite frankly, what a beautiful place this is in winter. Well, and it, I'm connecting the dots here because I'm talking uh, with real estate agents uh, about some of the numbers that have happened. Again, you're right, as we're approaching the one-year anniversary, it's time for us to do some analysis as to what we're doing and, and, and why we're doing it. And what's happened here is uh, there's been a boom, as you know, Daryl, in, in people buying recreational properties, cottages, uh, chalets, whatever the case might be. Uh, and they're not doing it in downtown Toronto. They're doing it in, you know, the Muskoka region. They're doing it in Collingwood, Blue Mountain, places like that. It's it's their, their nature getaway. And in Nova Scotia. Oh, yeah. Island and uh, and this, this was always sort of going on. But people, um, the reason they were doing it, it was basically economic. Uh, so the aspiration to have your own home, and by that I mean, uh, you know, four independent walls with uh, a, in, in a standalone house with a backyard and a driveway and all that type of thing, has always been the pinnacle of middle class achievement in Canada. So as the cities became more and more expensive, uh, and commuting became more and more of a problem, people started to move out. You throw the the the, uh, the pandemic in. And then there's even more incentive for people to start exploring uh, uh, living in other places. So uh, particularly places that are somewhat proximate to the city, they're, they're going to have a certain amount of real estate pressure. So those places like Hamilton, maybe even London, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit far away. But some of those places are going to experience a bit of a boom because uh, there, there, are, um, there were other factors already driving people out of the city. And COVID simply amplified it. So uh, my expectation is you're going to see that trend continue. And the interesting thing is the city is doing nothing to help that. So when I say the city, I mean Toronto. So they've used this situation to go out and build bike lanes, which is great for people who live in the city. Uh, you know, they've had traffic restrictions. They're doing uh, more and more to make it more difficult to drive a car into the city. And if you're a commuter and 90% of the population growth in Canada over the space of the last 20 years has been in car commuting communities, if you can work from home now, why would you even go to the city? Well, exactly. And, and by the way, to your point, uh, 
we did a segment last week. The London real estate market is booming now too, so it has gone all the way down the 401. Uh, and, and again, there's there's an attraction to London. I mean, it is the forest city. There's a, a lot of fabulous natural sites uh, in that particular area too that uh, you may not get exposed to unless you're you know you're living near you know the Don Valley or over by where you are in High Park in Toronto or some of the areas that we're talking about here. But let me ask you something because one of the things I'm always intrigued by with with the research and the polling you do, yes, it, it can be a snapshot in time as to where we are, but you're also always there looking at trends. Uh, you know, eventually we're going to come out of this, but how is this revelation now, but we need more open space and we need more fresh air. How's that going to impact us going forward? Are we going to demand it now? Yeah, I think we're going to demand it. And uh, the thing that I think is going to be really interesting is the pressure it's going to put on cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, you've been to Toronto, I'm sure many, many. Times. Oh yeah. Uh, and you've been down on, you know, Bay street and front street and, mm-hmm. and seen what's down there. And the, the, the thing that a lot of people who don't live in the city, uh, know about is that uh, there's a whole tunnel system that connects everything down yes. there, the path system. There's, another, tons, there's tons another city down there. Stores. Yeah, tons and tons and tons and tons of stores. Who's going who's gonna to be down there now? I mean, there, there are big impacts from the trends that you're, you and I are talking about. Even if people decide to you know, continue that process of moving out of the city and maybe working three days a week from home or two days a week from home, those are two or three days a week that they're no longer buying a sandwich for lunch, that they're no longer buying their, you know, repairing their shoes, they're no longer going to the drugstore, they're no longer doing their shopping. What's going to happen to that? It's, that's going to be interesting, but there's also, I think, going to be pressure on city councils to to try to create some more opportunities. As a matter of fact, one that jumps to mind is not too far from where you are now, uh, right down by the the, the stadium is Liberty Village. Uh, you know, in other words, people say we don't just want concrete and glass; we want open space, we want green space, we want walkable paths, bike paths. Uh, and Liberty Village is a kind of a little oasis right down there in the middle of all yeah. of that. Uh, that's great for a whole lot of people. And of course, there's the waterfront down there too. But uh, you know, even for residents, residential areas now I, I can see we're going to demand more green space you know give us you know walking paths and give us places where we can have our recreation without having to drive 45 miles outside the city to do it yeah and and the beautiful thing about most of the urban areas in canada is we have access to those things so you mm-hmm. know most of the uh, major cities in this country were built along waterways so you know most of them have waterfronts Vancouver has a waterfront, Halifax has a waterfront, Montreal has a waterfront, Toronto has a waterfront, Hamilton has a waterfront. What are we doing to make those areas accessible for the people who live there? Because, you know, those waterfront properties, waterfront opportunities to go down and experience uh, not just uh, nature on the land, but nature nature in the water is something that's really, uh, really appealing to people. So what are we going to do about cleaning up our waterfronts as well? Yeah, and some cities, as you say, have been much more proactive. I mean, Toronto's done a pretty decent job over the last number of years. Hamilton had this huge debate, uh, I guess, about 25, 30 years ago, because that used to all be uh, toxic industrial land, and they put the waterfront parks and trails along there. And uh, I know there's a lot more that they want to do on that, but it's, it's, it's. You're right. People are drawn to it. I don't know. I'm getting into the Darwinian theories here, but we're drawn to water here, Daryl. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure on that too. It's, it's a fabulous survey because it really, as I say, this doesn't say where our heads are right now. Uh, but I think we are going to be demanding a difference in, in the way that things are developed and, uh, and things are planned in the future. And uh, we can look to this survey, and I think it kind of indicates if there are some forward-thinking politicians, uh, read the survey that Ipsos has done, because I think it's a harbinger of things to come. Always a pleasure, Daryl. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Same to you and your listeners, Bill. Thanks. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.